empty. I'm back in my office. This is Prim's. This was Prim's little bedroom. Yeah. And now it's my office again. So we've managed to move everything around. It's interesting when a, when a child flows the coop, often a parent or grandparent will will wait a little bit of time before reclaiming the area that they they had handed over no, no, to no, no, like no, 48 no. hours later. I had my Allen key out. That cot was down within 20 <laughs> minutes of them leaving the house. <laughs> I'm surprised you went with the Allen key and you didn't just go up there with an axe, Chinch. I actually had it this on my is keys never getting used again. to my belt, so I was just ready to go. <laughs> what, what, you like, whip, whip, quick, quick draw out of your pocket yeah, with the Allen well, key? Yeah, well, I've been amazed by it. I don't know, I've not moved house for quite a while, but actually with, like, furniture, some furniture's arrived today. Nikki's gone mad. She's ordering loads of stuff, chairs and, and stools and stuff you've got built. Allen key seems to have taken the place of the Phillips screwdriver. Everything seems to be Allen keys. Yeah, it's true. Is it true? I mean, is that just me? No, it's true. I've been recently um, put up quite a lot of furniture. Yeah. I would say that I needed a screwdriver for a couple of things. Yeah. And i tell you what you don't get anymore. Flathead screwdrivers. They're just defunct. No one, want, no one wants a flathead screwdriver. What's that? About? What, is, that is that a thing? Is that the Phillips head screwdriver, does it give a better join? Well, the, the thing with the Phillips head, the cross head, presumably with a flathead, you can break them and scuff it. So that's yeah. why the genius of the crosshead really is less chance of it actually. Yeah. Right? Is that why are you smirking? No, I'm, I'm just thinking. Why I'm, did they create? Why did they create the crosshead when they had the flathead screwdriver? Why? I'm, it must be with purchase. Purchase. Yeah. yeah. Purchase. It is. No, I'm just it's all about purchase. This yeah. might be the most stereotypically blokey no. conversation we've ever had. And it's also had. a reference to our, our Lord Jesus Christ as well, the cross. So I yeah. think that's two reasons why the crosshead has become. That, are you so saying important. that the cro that crosshead screws are in some way innately blessed? I, I think they are. When I put furniture together, I, I feel the the touch of God upon my shoulder and upon my wrist as I twist. Hang so, on a minute. Doesn't, yeah. doesn't, the, uh, doesn't the Allen key essentially lay out the pattern of the Star of David? Wow, this is fascinating. So Ikea is no. basically a church. <laughs> That's what we're saying, isn't it? Yeah? Well, synagogue. Come, yes. <laughs> come, and, come and pay your respects to... Every known religion it's a at Ikea. It's a multi-faith place of worship, Chinch. It is, and you can get some wardrobes as well. I'm looking for an Allen key. Is it five points or six points? It's five. So hexagons. The hexagons, aren't they? Hexagons. Oh, it's five. Hexagons. In that in that case, it is Clearly, lots. how much furniture have you but You don't even know how many sides an I'm, Allen key normally has. Come on. I don't examine the Allen keys before I use them. No, I certainly don't count the sides. No. Yeah, they're, they're, all they hexagons. they're all hexagons. An Allen key hexagons. is a hexagon. That's yeah. the whole point. In fact... Chinch, I'm so dedicated to Allen Keys that I, I went into the hard, you know the hardware shop in Didsbury? Yeah. Hugh and Steve. Yes. Chinch won't. Yes, the, yes. They're really nice, but it's incredibly sort of expensive. You go in and it's like £73 for a light bulb. It makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I, bought, some, I bought some decorating tape in there for a tenner at yeah. the height of lockdown. <laughs> like, this stuff is like three quid online. Come on, yeah. come on, guys. I, mean, I don't mind paying a little bit extra. You pay a bit extra because it's, it's, nice, it's a family business and that's yeah, yeah. fine and you want, you want to help out. But at the same time, you'd be like, hang on, that, those batteries cannot possibly cost 24 quid. That's just not, it's just not, they're just batteries. Um, they're not even I, Duracell. <laughs> I, bought a, um, I bought a set of, my own set of Allen keys and it is one of the best things I've ever bought. It was, it, does it, any, any kind of, different size Allen key you need. I've, I've got it. Small, I always keep them. If I, you, know, normally, you normally get them given to you when you're building for twice. Do you keep them all as well? I keep, yeah, even though they're all the same. But they're I not just, the same. Not throw, true. No, no, but a lot of them are. Different well, girth. not even sizes, but you tend to get a... You, the, I think the, if you had Allen keys, there will be for furniture, there's probably a size of Allen key that you'll get more than others. So you only really need yeah. one, clearly. But I've no. got about 16 of the same Allen key, but I can't throw them away. They're too precious. 
you need more than one because they do. Well, I have a set in. of Allen keys. I'm not an idiot. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not Tommy Walsh, but I've got a set of Allen keys, you know? When is Hugh going to save us from this with the scripted <laughs> intro? Now, this is Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are three people who are very much ahead of the curve. Stephen Wyeth, who said that the interpretation of the handball rule couldn't be changed before it was. Rory Smith, who wrote a piece detailing why he felt sorry for Joe Gomez before Aston Villa 7, Liverpool 2. And Andy Hinchcliffe, who in our knee-jerk early season predictions said Manchester City would be mid-table by Christmas and they'd replace Pep with Neil Warnock. And obviously that's going to be Manchester United and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. So well done, everybody. The food is. Does anybody have any food? Chinch, have you have you ha- had any um any meals post getting rid of Carly and Primrose that you're particularly proud of? Uh, well, well, I can't be proud of them because I never really make the food. We're having this discussion last night, Nikki and I. And she, I, I said, "Well, teach me how to cook," because she's complaining that I don't cook. And I said, "Well, teach me how to cook." And she said, "No, because you just you just huff and puff and, and go on about how hard it is." So I can't offer myself up to be taught, and then someone say. No, I'm not doing it because it's not worth it. What's the point? What's the point? And then you can't complain about cooking for me, can you? So anyway, we had a lovely pasta last night with, uh, with, fillet, with fillet steak, sliced fillet steak in, in pasta with Louis. It's just absolutely delightful. You've never had it, I don't think. I don't think Nikki's made it for you. And she never will. Yeah, I can't. Uh, yeah, we're not going to get fillet steak when we come over, are we? Let's oh, good. you're like a good boy, to... Steve. You, you, you can have it. You can have it. Sounds like Carly wasn't getting it either. <laughs> yes. It's actually Carly's favourite meal, and Nikki hasn't made it, I think, on purpose for months to get her out. <laughs> and the football is chinched. Do you know what we're talking about today? Uh, this is becoming a bit of like your, your kind of catchphrase, isn't it? Chinched, you know what we're talking about today? Clearly, I don't know. No, because I'm not in that group with you. I keep saying this. You're just making yeah. me look stupid everywhere. You didn't do this at the start of the podcast, I remember. Something that you're doing now every single podcast to make me look stupid. I don't need you to make me look stupid. I can do that myself, thank you. Chinch, I don't think any of us remember the start of the podcast. Where, when was it? Well, was I it don't the, think there's ever been a time wall? where we didn't do this podcast. It feels like it's been... It's that's been part too of long, lives. really, isn't it? If we feel like that, that's too long. Uh, we are talking today about managers talking to either the media or players and whether anybody actually pays attention. This is one of our most requested subjects, would you believe? So after the, just the right amount of time before those people start to feel completely disenfranchised, we're going to have a conversation about team talks and press conferences. What is their value and who are they aimed at? At whom? Are they aimed? That is to come. Thanks to everyone, by the way, has entered the SPM PLPL, the Set Piece Menu Premier League Predictions League. I have to say once again, the hardest job I had was reminding the three other members of the SPM team to actually submit their selections. I haven't done it. Yeah, we're going to add them in manually. Don't worry, Rory. Special extension of the transfer window just you should, No, no, no. He should be banned. If you haven't, fine. even I did it. Even, no, no, don't say fine. Say, no, no, no. We need to sort something. Don't say fine. We need fine. you. I need you in so I can beat you. If I can do it, you're a busy man. I know that. But who are you interviewing? What, what, you could consider, who, are you, who are you interviewing that you couldn't... Oh, Javi. Or, oh, I can't do it because I'm interviewing Javi. Well, come on, there's the a Spain reason. Come squad. On. <laughs> You're putting a wardrobe together. Chinch, just before you get too comfortable in your ivory tower, I'm pretty sure we had to put your team in manually last year because you missed the deadline. I'm just trying to copy uh, the Chinch the past, method of success. The past is a different country, Stephen. Uh, we have had, even in these circumstances, a record number of entries. If you'd like to see what we have predicted, then just head to tinyurl.com forward slash setpiece menu, type in our names, and since you are a man of your word, you put Leeds in eighth. What, why does that surprise you? I'm just saying you're a man of your word, and also I'm yeah. clearly reminding you of something you'd already forgotten about. No, uh, no, no, no. Get in touch with the podcast, that's setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube as well. We start with an email from Gabriel Radus. Dear esteemed podcasters, 
Are you regretting not delaying the WTF episode by an extra week? Best Gabriel in Durham. No, because we can just revisit it another time. We could have had a WTF is still going on. <laughs> yes. But it's, I, I have, can, I have, can I have one minute to, to, have, to offer a theory that I've been working on instead of doing my SPMPL, PL, PL, PL team thing? Is, is the, it's the, those two things mutually exclusive, are they? Yeah, no, I can't. I can't. It's, it's such an over, over sort of overarching theory that it's really hard for me to think about anything else. I think it's to do with variance. I think that's the explanation. So, or that's the explanation that makes sense to me. So the talent difference in the Premier League is really, really small. So even the players that we think of as being rubbish are really, really good. And I mean, even Chinch, when he was playing in the Premier League, was an amazing footballer. Like we joke about it, but Chinch, is, Chinch was, don't know about anymore, he doesn't have any knees, but Chinch was amazing at football. Like properly amazing, like beyond... Whoa, 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 whoa. I, think you, your, I see the point you're making, don't bring me into it. <laughs> beyond your comprehension, amazing at football. So if you take the team who you think is going to finish bottom, Fulham, which is the correct answer, their players are actually really, really good at football. They might look like they're crap against Manchester City, but they're, they're actually really, really good at football. And so you have all these, these X factors that have been thrown in this season, that the absence of fans, which changes the dynamic of games, the lack of pre-season, the fatigue, the fact that I think a lot of players must be thinking in the back of their minds. Um, we've got another game in about 48 hours. We're 3-0 down, don't really need to chase this particularly. Um, you've got things like, the latter, the, the latter of preparation means that like Liverpool are trying to play this high line, which, which is risky at the best of times. And if, ever, if something's off, then, then everything collapses. Um, and because the talent difference is really small, even the smallest change can have dramatic consequences. So you get this incredible variance of results. And the teams that, it's a point Johnny Lou made in his column this week, the teams that are kind of just playing seven out of 10 football seem to be okay, like Spurs, Everton, um, Arsenal to an extent, Arsenal probably the best example of it. They're sort of a seven, seven, eight out of ten team, and they can produce that continually. The teams that that are trying to be nine out of ten, if something goes wrong, are suddenly dropping to like four or whatever. But the crucial thing is that I think has been missing from a lot of the explanations is I don't think all of those weird X factors have been thrown in. I don't think it's a linear effect. I think that they have different impact on different teams in different circumstances so it's not the case that without fans every player drops five percent some players will be better and some players will be better one week and worse the next week and some teams will be better one week and worse the next week and some teams will be better against certain opponents and worse against others and i think that's why you're getting not just the the wildness of the score of the score lines but like the variance within them so liverpool in the space of a week played as well as they have for months against arsenal that was a really good performance. They still, still gave up a few chances. And what Keane said about being sloppy, was a poor choice of words, but they, they did give chances away. And that was a valid point. And that's because of the, risk, the riskiness of the way they're playing. And then they go and produce genuinely the worst performance I've seen from a Liverpool team for at least six years since the 6-1 at Stoke. And possibly, it was possibly worse than that. Just like this childlike performance. And that, that I think is because... There's a non-linear impact of all these X factors, but also the, the talent difference in the Premier League is so minor that the variance in results, once those X factors are applied, can be huge. And it's why it's not happening in the Championship or in Scotland, where the, the talent level, I guess, is, is, isn't as high. That Most of the teams are, quite the, are kind of the same. So if one team drops 1% and another team raises 1%, then, you'll, then that team will win, but they might not win quite so wildly because there's still flaws in the players. Because everyone in the Premier League is amazing, the chances get taken. That is my theory. It's a bit like... Is theory into some kind of equation? 
I can try, but I'm it not. It sounded like the butterfly effect, but then you said it was non-linear, which made me think that it wasn't quite mm. so much. Well, no, but the butterfly effect is, all, effect is also non-linear. So there's an element of that in it. It is, yeah, it's probably not far off just plain obvious. I could have just said chaos theory and everyone would have understood, but it wouldn't have made me think I'm clever. So why would I, why would I have done that? But there's an element of that in it. That, and it, I think that's the crucial thing that everyone's looking for. No fans equals this, but it doesn't work like that. I think no fans equals lots of different things every, different, every other week. It's a bit like how in the most tedious of all sports, Formula One, mm. these incredibly high-functioning, highly-tuned cars break down all the time. And you'd be like, well, my Nissan Micra doesn't break down that often, so it must be a superior vehicle. The more highly-tuned something is, the bigger difference that a 5% drop-off is going to have. And I'm still utterly mystified. And it... it was still going on last night on the radio that former recently retired footballers are still trotting out this thing. No, no, the, the lack of crowds doesn't make any difference to the players whatsoever. Why are you saying this? Is there some kind of secret society in the background and you've got a WhatsApp group and you, you've been you're getting regular, regular message updates to remind you to say, look, to, to, to perpetuate this myth, it must be making a difference. You cannot be trying to convince us that it is a coincidence that we are seeing all of this crazy football and ridiculous scoreline behind closed doors that we weren't seeing eight months ago. I was on that radio show, Stephen, and was trying to explain to Chris Sutton and Micah Richards the, the folly of their argument. Sutton's thing seems to be that saying that the, the, the absence of fans makes a difference is giving the players an excuse and he doesn't want to do that he doesn't he he will he will have watched United get smashed by Spurs or Liverpool get hammered by Villa and thought these players have been terrible there is no excuse for playing that badly and I can see why a former pro would think that but it was interesting doing doing that show with them over the course of the two hours having started off both of them saying it makes no difference you can't use the, the absence of fans to explain it and they both, in the course of the next two hours, gave two or three examples of how the absence of fans will have affected players in certain situations. So I'm, I think it's, I, I kind of get where he's coming from. I don't think you can, I don't think it makes it okay for the players to turn in the sort of performance that Liverpool and United did. But I, I don't see, like you say, I don't see how you can pretend it's not a factor. And it's like that idea that those two things would be mutually exclusive. It's perfectly fine yeah. to say the absence of fans is clearly having an impact on our highly tuned footballers, but also those performances are utterly unacceptable. You, yeah. you, it's not, one is not an excuse for the other. Sorry, Chinch, you, you look ready to speak. No, no, just I, I think the players have become accustomed to playing with no fans there, but the game clearly is very different. But we're never going to see Aston Villa 7, Liverpool 2 for the next... 25 years are we it's just a complete so what there has to be a reason for it as Roy said Villa have some good players they, they are very good at football yes it can happen but it hasn't happened up to this point and will it ever so there has to be reasons behind why these things are occurring so what was really interesting about Sunday was that you had one result that would not have happened had fans been in the ground so if that game had followed the same path United United Tottenham and United destroyed a second minute penalty Tottenham would not have beaten them 6-1. Just wouldn't have happened because mm -hmm. the Old Trafford would have been up for it. United would have pushed forward. Spurs might have won, but they wouldn't have scored six. Mm -hmm. Partly, I think, because I can't remember who made this point, I don't think Mourinho would have set his team up to go and try and to, to keep flowing forward in, in, in a normal situation with 76,000 inside Old Trafford. That result doesn't happen with fans. Villa-Liverpool could happen with fans. So you have, you have two man... Two, two, the same thing manifesting completely differently 
in within the space of five hours. So in in, in a sense, if if that if Liverpool had turned up in Villa, at Villa Park, and as you say, the Holt had been fallen, it had been rocking it could have been worse with fans because Liverpool playing like that would get beaten with or without fans. You can make the argument that they wouldn't have put in that performance with fans in the stadiums. They might have been more focused, but it is feasible to think that a team playing that badly in front of a crowd could get beaten 7-2, but not a chance that United go 1-0 one, one up in the second minute and lose 6-1 at home to Spurs in front of a full Old Trafford. doesn't happen. I, I know that Manchester United, when they lost to Manchester City, didn't go 1-0 down, but other other aspects of it were familiar in that they would, a man down, they carried on attacking and were picked off. And that, happened that Man City team times. was a lot better than this Tottenham team. True, but just saying that it, it has happened before, but the circumstances were slightly different. And talking yeah. about fans and, and, and whether fans being there is the, the cause, it's, it's like the, the climate change argument. If you have a hurricane or forest fires or anything like this, they, you can argue that they're not necessarily caused by climate change, but you cannot argue that they are not exacerbated by climate yes. change. Yeah, okay, yeah, and, it's, yeah. and it's that sort of similar yeah. thing. Because obviously climate change and I to say no that it's got nothing to do with it. global warming and that's cold so how does that work but it's not necessarily cause and effect but it is an effect on it even if it isn't the, isn't the root cause do you think we're running the risk of first place are we running the risk of alienating our the, the demographic of our audience that's full of climate climate change deniers I took that risk I just think that uh, <laughs> maybe Hugh, do we not want them maybe we don't want them Hugh's, yeah. Hugh's accusing Chris Sutton of being a behind closed doors denier <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much no but no he no, but it's not a to be fair, if you get Chris, Chris Sutton is is a is a climate change denier. There has been a cl- change in the climate, and he's denying it. <laughs> Getting back to the football with United, I absolutely agree with Mourinho's approach to that game because of the circumstances. But do you also do, do say the United players the mistakes that they made and continue to make? Do you, do you think sometimes they forget that people are watching because there's nobody in the stadium? It. it does seem as if it's like a training game, as if they make a mistake. Oh no, we can see. Oh, they, do they because the fans aren't there to tell them that they've made this massive error? Don't do it again because that's what players tend to. You make a mistake because if you feel the fans every time you then touch the ball after that, you're a lot more wary about making another mistake. But with no fans in the stadium, you maybe get the benches screaming at you. Do they maybe forget that actually you've got millions of people possibly still watching the mistakes that you're making? So again, we're talking about the psychological effects of fans not being in the stadium on the players themselves. I think when you do make a mistake, you're very different from that point onwards. Is Harry Maguire the, the modern-day Truman Burbank, basically completely unaware that people are watching his every move? But you know what I mean? It seems to, when you know, you're playing in front of 76,000 at Old Trafford, you don't think about the TV audience so the fact that the fans aren't there, is that still going to make you think, well, there's still going to be millions of people watching on TV? Probably not. If you're never thinking about that when you play, I don't think you would think about it even when the stadium's full or not. I just, again, trying to find reasons why players are doing what they're doing. And it's seemingly as if it, it must matter, but it, it seems as if it doesn't matter. It's just a scoreline and it's just a game. It's, it's a one-off season. It's just a, a crazy time. It seems very odd to me how players are playing. I, I wonder, I was at Anfield on, um, when, when Liverpool beat Arsenal 3-1 and it, it, I found it really odd that, that Arsenal kept passing the ball out from the back, despite the fact that A, it was really risky and they almost got caught, and B, it wasn't working. They just ended up hoofing it forward anyway. And I, I wonder whether that, that's like the flip side of what Chinch is talking about, that because the fan, I think in that situation, with fans in the stadium, the team would think, mm, this is risky, let's not do the it fans, The fans would tell you not to stop yeah. doing it. Yeah. And yeah. There'd, there'd come a point where you thought, where your behaviour kind of unknowingly changed, 
I wonder if with United, say, I wonder if with fans in the stadium, that they do just drop 10 yards and they think, right, actually, do you know what? Let's just, let's just hold this. Just, we, this is going to get really nasty. Without fans there, you don't have that impetus to do it. So in that sense, there's a, there's a kind of, there's a, that's how it's influencing it in that situation. That the, fan, the fans aren't there to tell you, just shut up shop, we're being embarrassed. Just like when we're watching on television and the fan soundtrack helps us if we're distracted and looking elsewhere, look up at the right moments. I think there is an argument to say that for footballers playing the game, that they are given a soundtrack of significance by those fans around them. They are led to believe that there is a significance to what is going on by the way that they're reacting. And potentially in that game at Manchester United, it's about how many people are leaving the stands as well. Because that, that is a visual thing. It's not necessarily just an audio thing. I also remember, whether it's true or not, I remember a story in that, that Man City um, 6-1 win at Old Trafford is that I think it was maybe 3-1 or 4-1 and Paul Scholes turning to Rio Ferdinand, Ferdinand and saying, just keep the score down. But they couldn't, they couldn't contain City because City were too good. But clearly, Paul Scholes had realised, fans I don't think made any, they realised what was going on here and we're going to get truly embarrassed here. So they tried to stop the flow of it, but, but simply couldn't do it. So again, players do understand the position that they're in. It's not as if, well, we're 3-1 down, we're Man United at home. Let's just keep going. They knew that they were getting battered. And Scholes is saying, if it, just, just try and keep the score down if we can, because we're just getting completely overrun. So players do know how a game is going. They don't necessarily need the fans to tell them, but it does. Like, so if you're playing out the back or playing in a way that isn't suiting the fans, is not suiting the game, the fans will tell you. Uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, after that game, talked about the fact that the players were naive and kept on attacking. So perhaps he wasn't part of that conversation between Rio Ferdinand and You should have shouted a lot more loudly, Scolzi. Um, this, by the way, is still part of the correspondence part of the programme. And, and I'm sure we'll discuss further over the course of the next few weeks. But um, That's uh, the most content, by the way, we've got yeah. from the shortest piece this of email. correspondence. Yeah. Gabriel's one-sentence email has given us about 20 minutes worth of output. Uh, I think he knows us well enough to know exactly what he was doing. Um, uh, we do have some further uh, thoughtful, eloquent com- con- contributions from listeners at slightly greater length. We will uh, get through as many of them as we can um, with a nod to the time. Uh, John Lee is one of those contributors. Afternoon, chaps. The biggest compliment I can give is that when confronted with the avalanche of football-related podcasts that I download and often don't get around to listening to every day, I always listen to yours as soon as it hits. Intelligent people and chunch discussing football <laughs> is as rare as hen's teeth. Uh, says John. Praise delivered. I do have a couple of points on episode 198. Number one, WTF. You discussed the possible reasons for the oddities that we have seen so far this season. Players' sharpness was discussed, and I was surprised that the mental state of the players was not put into the context of the pandemic in particular. As a teacher, I have banned coronavirus talk in my classes, so I fully understand that there is a desire not to keep mentioning it. But when discussing reasons why players or any person may not be fully switched on right now, I think it should at least be a footnote. Most of these players, just like the rest of us, will have a friend or family member who has or has had the virus. They are tested on a daily basis and face more stringent rules than just about anyone outside of the medical profession so it is never allowed out of their consciousness crucially many of them live very far from their families and may not have seen loved ones for many months footballers are clearly well remunerated but they are not immune to mental health difficulties just like the rest of us and i was a little surprised that this went unmentioned so we are john now mentioning it that is a very good point it's like and it is something that footballers have spoken about in the past is that you not in relation to this, but I've heard footballers talk about how, you know, in everyday life, people might use a sleepless night with their kids or stresses about something away from work as impacting on how they go about their professional duty. And, and footballers are no different to that. You know, they, they're, not, they're not inoculated from things completely. You know, money doesn't completely inoculate you from other aspects of life. I do think there's a, there's a point that's missed in, in that whole wildness discussion as well about 
like we're all a bit unmoored from our, our surroundings at the moment, and I suspect players are too. I, the, it, everything is weird, and weird things happen when everything's weird. Um, the second point of John's email um, may well uh, open a can of worms, um, just like Andy Hinchcliffe used to open a can of beans with his left foot. But the, um, this can of worms needs to remain small. Once again, for time purposes, I say with great fear in my voice. Number two, deliberateness in handball. Like everyone with half a mind, says John, I agree that this rule needs to be fixed, but there is one particular aspect I do not agree with. The current acceptance that we have to remove the word deliberate from the rules. The general vibe is that we can't expect referees to read players' minds, but a quick look at the legal concept of deliberateness solves this easily. In order to be found guilty for a crime, there needs to be an element of intent in most cases. Judges and juries use the reasonable man test to ascertain this intent, i.e. was it reasonable to assume that if I do X, then there will be consequence Y. If you walk around swinging a baseball bat in Sainsbury's, you can't defend that you didn't mean to hit the old deer on the back of the head in aisle six. The same idea can be used in football quite easily and does not require mind reading, just a simple, was it reasonable for the defender to have his arms in that position at that point? Stay safe and thanks for providing an hour or so of distraction per week for people like me who desperately need it. Uh, cheers, John Lee, enjoying the sun in Lisbon, which is a, something of a, an unnecessary postscript. Hold your fire on handball. Hold your fire. I see intakes of breath happening. Hold your fire. There is more to come. Ewan Haig has contributed something contemporaneous, which, given his contributions uh, before now, is, um, well, it's in keeping with the theme of the bazaar, frankly. Dear John, Paul, George and Ringo, I hope you are all doing well. After listening to almost 200 episodes back to back, it has been strange listening to just one highly enjoyable SPM each week, but I've been getting used to it. And so I thought I'd send in something that came to mind from SPM 198's entertaining and on-point discussion of recent handballs leading to penalties. I have long thought, says Ewan, that there should be a qualitative difference between a Luis Suarez versus Ghana handball, penalty, red card, etc., all well-deserved, and other handballs that range from Mane's flick onto Sissoko's arm in the 2019 Champions League final and to the recent incident involving Eric Dyer in Joel Ward for which a penalty seems too harsh a sanction. There needs to be some level of intermediate action, something between a penalty and nothing. Fortunately, football already has just such a category, the indirect free kick. So how about an indirect free kick in the box, perhaps even from the penalty spot, for what the referee determines to be an accidental but consequential handball? Keep up the excellent work. Stay well. Watch out for bears. All the best, you and Haig in Chicago. So I will now get you to weigh in on the word deliberate and the possibility of a reduced sanction before our final email on handballs. Just to go to John's point about defining d deliberate as it is done in, in law, I kind of see what he's getting at. But the sort of comparison with swinging a baseball bat in Sainsbury's and being accidentally struck on the arm by the ball in the penalty area doesn't quite marry up. I mean, Phil Jones isn't playing at the moment, so nobody is running around twirling their arms in the penalty area and getting struck by the ball in that regard. I think in that case, you would definitely say, look, that is as deliberate as you can get. I think what John went on to describe was effectively similar to what we were saying in that episode, which was get the referee to make a distinction as to whether or not the player could have done anything to prevent that coming together of ball and hand happening. I don't think we need to bring deliberate into it. I think the, 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 the definition that John has made marries up with what we were previously discussing. And although Ewan makes an int interesting point regarding indirect free kick, and it is something that's been talked about, I just think, we were, we're trying to get to a point where we're simplifying this. And if you add another layer of punishment in between penalty or not penalty, it's actually making it more complicated. And you are asking the, you again are asking the referee to make 
an even more in-depth judgment on the seriousness of that, that incident, seriousness of that incident, and that isn't going to help us clear anything up. My only contribution was going to be say that I quite like the idea of a, of those kind of those accidental sort of innocuous handballs being not being punished with a penalty, just because I don't think that the 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 punishment fits the crime in those cases that you're not, you know, a penalty gives you a 85% chance of scoring. And in a lot of those cases, the offence is taking place when you have a far lower chance of scoring than that. And I think that is something that is a flaw in, in the way handball's been interpreted at the moment. But Steve is right that if you, that it's a good idea. It's one of those ideas that's good in theory, almost like the orange card is quite a good idea in theory, but, in practice, it just increases the complication because you're then saying to the referee, you, you have to gauge not only was an offence committed, but you have to have an understanding of the context in which that offence was committed. And you are basically saying, well, don't think you wouldn't have scored from there, mate. So you're only having an indirect free kick. So I, I think that it probably falls down under the weight of Steve's powerful argument. Well, Hugh and I had a, a chat with best man Billy the other day, didn't we, about this on the back of the episode. And, and we were talking about how, look, as, as ridiculous as it, it might be, an accidental handball that leads to a goal, whether it goes directly in off the arm or sets up a teammate, you have to say, well, look, that probably should be ruled out because, you know, that, that only seems fair, really. You can't score a goal with your arm, however accidental. And we kind of got to the point with, with Billy saying, well, actually, maybe, do you know what? If an accidental handball prevents the ball going into the goal or prevents it reaching somebody who would have had a tap in, then maybe you should say, look, sorry, I know that's completely accidental. There's nothing you could have done about it. But in those circumstances, it is a penalty. And that might be the compromise that you reach in terms of what we were talking about, about could the player have done anything to prevent it happening? That there are in the same way as if it leads directly to a goal, the goal is ruled out. If it quite clearly has prevented a goal from being scored, then that is a penalty, but perhaps there's no further sanction for the player that committed the offence. I suppose in life and in football, trying to work out whether something is deliberate or the intent that somebody has is incredibly difficult. If we're talking about giving it being more subjected and referees having a looser law to work with and they can decide, would it help? I know it's been mentioned a few times maybe in the past about having a former player aid the process as well because or is it just down the law is this no no no, i don't need the work i'm 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 i've got wardrobes and stuff to build but if if you have a referee is it just well there's the law the referee again subjectively looks at that and says well i I feel as a referee whether you played or not i'm just going to apply that law or not or do you need a former player to maybe watch and say well actually to, to most people that wouldn't look like he's intentionally just moved his arm towards the ball but I'm telling you as a player that's something I've done that's something I think he's doing there would it help to have or again is that just another layer another voice another complication to this issue as well or do we just say there is the law we maybe adapt the law a little bit and leave it to the referees to again make their mind up do they need a former player's voice maybe giving them an idea of what maybe is going through you're closer to what's going through a, a player's mind or is that complicating things even more I think what needs to be uh, arrived upon is, is what Rory mentioned and what we, we actually spoke about in a different conversation, Steve, with somebody else uh, this week, is that the fact that, uh, that innocuous handballs, such as they are, are leading to a significant 
moment happening in a game and those mm -hmm. two things are not marrying up and and whether you change the rule or bring an indirect free kick or do something that is the situation that that is wildly disproportionate and there so needs to be a resolution a, to that yeah steve say so if, if i'm a defender running along a goal line and the you balls, were a defender Chinch. i was <laughs> yeah, this is not a hypothetical I not situation well, i still i still am a defender in many ways i when the postman comes i do tend to kick in and, and jock him towards the uh, the post box but if if i'm running along <laughs> smashes a ball at me and it just accidentally clearly I don't save it like Luis Suarez it hits my hand with saying well that even though it's accidental the ball would have gone in the net you have to give a penalty for that yeah Do you send the player off as well no I don't think so not if it's no, accidental it's, it's purely accidental he's not trying to yeah. save it it's hit him so you get the benefit of the penalty because really it should be a goal but that that's just would you yellow card the player for that no, not if it's accidental. accidental I think no. I, I think the penalty itself is the punishment. Enough. Yeah, yeah. But it, uh, yeah. but if the player if the player has made a move towards the ball to save it, mm. then you say, well, that's a penalty and a red card. You, mm. I don't think there's a yellow card situation in there. So in the in the past, when say the ball was smashed against a striker's hand and it went in, those goals were given back in the day, weren't they? Okay, but is, have we got to a point where it's football? So now hands cannot be in an attacking sense, cannot be. But I still think, well, actually, it's still part of the. And again, if it's accidental and a defender smashes the ball off you and it goes in, is is there not still an argument to say, well, okay, it's not ideal, but it, it's, the, the the body is playing the game. It's not just the feet, is it? You can score goals with your head, your chest, your backside. So again, if it, if it's played off your hand accidentally and goes into the net, is it just we're getting a bit too purist about it? We cannot, cannot, cannot have a goal go in off someone's hand. That just seems to me like a reasonable addition to a simplified handball rule mm. to say, look, do you know what? However accidental, because the circumstance you've just described there, Chinch, is a, is a freakish occurrence. So it can be put down as that. So you say, look, just, you know, so I know it's a, moral, it... it's a moral thing, really. Yeah, I, I think that seems fair. Enough. Common sense approach. Um, yeah, mm. we, we spoke about uh, not remembering what it was like when the podcast started. Well, when the podcast started, we would have finished the entire episode by now. Um, so over the course of the four years, um, we have clearly bloviated to such an extraordinary extent. And for that reason, I apologize to Tom Sherrington. Tom, we'll get to you next week. OK, Tom, Tom Sherrington, it is on tape. I will get oh, you next week. Tom, you're going to get a mention on episode 200. That's like a coveted oh, wow. position. <laughs> is that, is that really it? Teddy Sheringham? He's just changed his name just <laughs> so he can get on the pod. He's the unlicensed, unlicensed version <laughs> of Teddy Sheringham. Can I just put on one thing to finish off very quickly on handball is that this, there have been this thing bubbling under in certain areas of social media that the, the handball chaos we've seen at the start of the, the new season was effectively the blame of people who had campaigned for VAR. This is what you were voting for when you demanded <laughs> that we had technology coming together. You were, you were voting for handball chaos. And I, and I then actually heard it said by a bona fide proper journalist on a legitimate football podcast the other day, that same theory. And that is completely bonkers. Nobody who was campaigning for technolo technology to assist referees to make sure that blatant miscarriages of justice were swiftly dealt with in football matches was saying, by the way, I also want the minute detail of the handball law to be exposed for all of it, it completes nothing. It's like saying, you, if you voted for Boris Johnson, you voted for coronavirus to sweep <laughs> through the nation, decimating our health and our economy. It's like, don't, don't say crazy stuff. That is, VAR was never intended 
it, a consequence of VAR has been to expose some of the nonsense yeah. of football's laws yeah. and has given us an opportunity, an unexpected opportunity to bring those laws up to date now with modern football. Uh, we will squeeze in this before we move on to our main subject. An update from Robbie Harms, our bear correspondent, who follows up on his somewhat opaque tale about one such animal being or not being outside his school from last week. He says, for immediate release, especially to chinch. It is a good thing I teach math and science because my storytelling skills are apparently very poor. There was indeed a bear. Our school is within a half mile radius of two others schools, not bears, I assume. And the one across the street reported a bear in the vicinity and alerted its neighbor schools. The bear must have either stayed at that school or run away because it never approached ours and thus no one here saw it. It's like the age old question, if a tree falls in the woods and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? With a twist. If a bear is reported, but no one sees it, was it really there? Sorry for the confusion. All the best, Robbie. Does that help you, Chinch? Um... Yeah, seemingly there was a bear, even though the school wasn't really under threat, but better safe than sorry. Absolutely. Just at a different school. And as we all know, the best bears always go to different schools. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, here we go. And our apologies for being late. Uh, now, whether it's as part of a general con contribution or a topic suggestion, many of you have pondered over the years on the significance of a manager's utterings, either in the dressing room or in front of the cameras. Most specifically, we are grateful to Robbie Wells, and Cameron Hill, whose correspondence we will hear in a moment, who have each asked for our thoughts on press conferences and team talks, respectively. A manager has many weapons in his arsenal to prepare and motivate his team before, during, and after matches. One is as well known as it is intensely private, as what goes on inside the dressing room stays in the dressing room. But we do get the odd hint, either via Amazon Prime or people like Gareth Southgate being underwhelmed by the efforts of Svenja and Ericsson of what kind of team talks take place. Another is overtly public and yet not apparently primarily for the players. The press conference is supposed to be for the press, but do managers assume and bank on a wider audience and hope to drive home a message to them via the media? So directly or indirectly, managers seek to influence players with their words. So this week we are asking, does it work? Do they listen? And do they actually bear the same significance as they might have in previous generations? Uh, we will start with team talks. And here is the email from Cameron Hill. Greetings all and sundry. Alexa, play fawning praise for the pod.mp3. See if that works. I recently read an interview in The Guardian, says Cameron, with former crew player Chris McCready, in which he essentially dismissed the few words of inspiration that came from managers. There is an assumption that something needs to be said, as if three minutes of talking is going to make a big difference to 90 minutes of playing football. It's filling a space. There's a lot of ego involved, and it's usually a waste of words. I have, says Cameron, come to the conclusion that manager team talks appear to be nothing more than self-serving egotism and that those fleeting few moments before walking out or at the halftime interval would better be spent going through adjustments in tactics and taking on vital nutrients. I wanted to pick your brains regarding this subject, especially the considerably large seven-cap brain of one Andrew Hinchcliffe. Are these team talks actually effective? Are they the relic of a bygone era or are they simply an example of life imitating art with coaches buying into Hollywood gimmickry? I've never seen, I've never experienced uh, teams, certainly maybe half, because half time is probably the, the key one, isn't it? Depending on how things are going, if, you, if you're doing well, if you're not, if you draw, the psychology of a half time team, I, I feel is, is hugely important. I never felt that a coach was talking to us through, about his, his, because it's to do with his ego, and he, well, I've got to say something here, so I'll just say anything. I tended to find, say, working with, with Joe Royal at Everton, Danny Wilson at Sheffield Wednesday, they both seem to do the same thing. We have, say you've got 15 minutes at half time. The first five minutes would be, 
you know, do what you need to do. If you need to go to the loo, if you need to have a drink, just let the dust settle a little bit. You might, if you immediately go into something, as soon as you walk into the dressing room, you can lose 10, 10 minutes, about 15 minutes. So they used to say five minutes, just get yourself composed, everyone sit down, then we'll talk about these things. And it was all, it was all, I don't think it was necessarily overly positive, but they tried to pick out the positives, even if you're not doing particularly well in the first half. So again, it's psychological. If you just go into the dressing room saying, well, mind you, Willie Donaghy did this when we were 5-1 up against Southampton. If you think you're playing well, you're not. But I, I saw that as a, as a joke because we're 5-1 up at half time and we win the game 7-1 eventually. So again, but with really, even when things weren't going particularly well, it was, all t- it was tactical because what you're trying to do is retrieve a situation or maintain a situation that you win. So you wouldn't say nothing. You wouldn't just rant and rave or just think it doesn't matter what I say here. And you've got to remember that you're dealing with a lot of very experienced players who kind of know what's happened anyway because they've been through this type of situation before. And you've had probably... Well, not this season, but in seasons past, five days of preparation for the game you're going to play in anyway. So a lot of tactical work is already in your head anyway. So again, maybe it's just reminding people or if the opposition have done something different, it's just again during the course of the first half is get information on. At half time, you can very definitely do that. There's a lot more in terms of um, using the, the, the pitch boards and, and magnets and stuff like that to actually show you what's going on. So... I never, I can't remember really a half-time team talk. Maybe in the early days of my career, it was a rant and a rave and just shout and tell everybody how bad. But coaches and managers very quickly realised that that is not going to get, that was maybe how they felt things should be done. But clearly that's not going to have an effect on the second half. So things change very, very quickly. And it's how to get someone who's underperforming to change that and just saying, you're absolutely crap, you're terrible, you've done everything wrong, go out and put it right. Some players can do that, but a lot of players mainly can't can't really do that they need some guidance towards how that happens but the I've talked about a lot the power of the senior players in a dressing room I've you know many times coaches would have would have their say and then would purposefully leave it because they know then Dave Watson Neville Southall at Everton Barry Horn they would be the ones that would say right we all know what he's told us but we all know anyway we're going to put this right amongst ourselves and that was and that happened after games as well we'd have meetings the players themselves without the coaching staff because we knew that we could do a lot about putting things right ourselves so yeah, I don't think it's about ego. Maybe back in the day it was. You know, you have Billy McNeil or, or Jimmy Frizzell at Man City. They were really imposing figures that you were terrified of. Um, but I don't think that was necessarily the way to get the best performances out of people, just terrifying them at halftime and, and shouting at them and telling them how badly they've done. Or if things are going well, you know, you've just got to basically keep... Well, how do we keep that up? How do we retrieve a situation? That's when the, the coach and the, the manager earns his corn. And it, it is. You've only got 50. It's not a long time. And you've got to assess, is anyone injured? Are there any problems? Do we want to change anything? If someone's coming on, what do they need to know? There's a lot goes into it. So they're, they're more important than ever, I would feel. But the, the players, like I said, what they've done during the week, what they know already about how a game has gone, they're probably 80% of the way there. They just need maybe that, that bit of something that they haven't realised has actually happened. Chinch, can I, can I ask a question? I, I don't know what is this. I'd always assume that sort of, as in terms of the general ebb and flow of a match, it was the work you did on the training ground in mm-hmm. terms of tactics and you know preparing set pieces and what have you and and learning about the strengths and weaknesses of your opposition and how those married up against your strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. but then that that pre-match or half-time team talk might have a, a consequence on the way that that half started in terms of momentum you know a galvanizing thing or a reminder of the key attributes that you've been working on but it would be very difficult for anything that the manager said in those final five minutes or so before kickoff to really be all that impactful once you got to the midpoint of the half because Mm -hmm. the actual game itself has taken over from the messages 
I suppose, yeah, I suppose in your preparation, you're looking at what the the previous the team you're playing has done in the previous few games. What, that's the why the team sheet is as important as ever because you can think, well, last time they played four two three one. What happens if they don't do that? So the work starts when you get a team sheet because you're, you know what team you're going to put out. But oh right, okay, he's not playing and he is playing. Are they going to play three at the back? Are they going? So very quickly after them work out the demands on you, even though you've worked all the way during the week about who you think you're up against. That's going to change. You're not up against a winger today or a wide midfielder. You're up against a wing back. So it does check. And very quickly, you have to, in that hour before kickoff, you have to assess and things can rapidly, rapidly change because of the way teams are rotated these days. So the demands are there for the coaching staff and the players to understand, right, we think the game is going to start this way by the team sheet that we've got. Well, what happens if it doesn't? If someone plays on the opposite side, you have to get that information on during the course of the game, which is easier now with no fans there. I think the communication is a lot easier for the coaching staff. And also the players have to very quickly switch on and say, well, the work I've done, set pieces are maybe a different thing. Attacking set pieces, you know what you're looking to do. Defending set pieces, you've maybe got different personnel that the opposition have got. Are they a bigger team than they were with the changes? So there's so much goes into the first hour. And then also during the, it's constantly under review. And that's why they have the analysts sat up watching the game, feeding the information down. Because they're never actually completely sure how a team's going to play. Is it playing the way that we think, even though the personnel has changed? And at half time, that gives you a break the game's not still going on and you're trying to adjust. You can actually sit and then what happens if they make substitutions at halftime? So it's a constantly moving process and it is really difficult. But I just think it's mainly, do, do people think the halftime team talks are the, the hairdryer? Is, is that what a halftime team talk is? And it absolutely isn't. It's a golden opportunity when the game has stopped to actually assess how you're doing, what they're doing, how we might change things, how they might change things. To, to get something from the second half or maintain the situation you've got. So it's, it shouldn't be lost, and it wasn't lost. On the, on the very best coaches I worked with, it was a, a, that time was gold with your players because you had time to sit and think and talk to them and get a message across to them. I've been struck by this over the last couple of weeks because of, of David Moyes in particular, kind of working, working from home, managing games via Zoom. And, and the perception was always that, oh, you know, without the manager, they'll re- really struggle. But then you do... I think that's. I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding, really, to an extent that the the bulk of a manager's work is done during the week. Now, obviously, Moyes has missed that as well, but I presume that he's had input into like training sessions and tactics and all that. You know, he can do a lot of the kind of the background work, even if he can't tape the sessions. I think we probably put an undue emphasis on the importance of the kind of inspirational few words before the game and at half time, just because partly because of, of what the correspondent mentioned in terms of like the Hollywood image of kind of lifting your, your, your troops for battle type thing, but also because it, it, it lends itself to, to two kind of aspects of football that we kind of believe in like intuitively. One is that the cult of the manager thing where, where the best managers are these sort of inspirational leaders and they have to inspire everybody and it's to do with inspiration. And to an extent, I suppose the modern variant of that is is that it's to do with sort of tactical genius and the ability to change things around. And you've got to kind of, I'm, I'm do, you know, this sort of chess match thing where I'm doing this now and, and that's going to win the game. Whereas in reality, I was at the Leeds Man City game, uh, the one all, and Bielsa said, it was brilliant at the end, Bielsa went, one of the things he said in the press conference was there, there were no interesting or significant tactical moves in the game. And I thought that is going to ruin a lot of people's pieces that they've written already. <laughs> that's going to be really... <laughs> devastating blow for Michael Cox and the, um, the nothing interesting nothing tactically interesting happened in this match um, did it so was anybody like control out delete the minute the quotes landed <laughs> that's a shame um, uh, it's just another element of his genius but it's it's something that kind of helps us understand it's it's the way that we believe as a as a public 
and I think it's probably true sort of over, over around the world, that's the way we understand sport is that this insp- you have to go out inspired by this inspirational figure. And if they're not there to inspire you, then, then nothing will be the same. And that we think that the manager's main, the, the main job of the manager, and I guess this comes from like Clough, the main job, job of the manager is to pitch up on a Friday, trying to get the players going and then be in charge on the Saturday. Whereas in actual fact, a lot of management is trying to, like admin isn't it really and like it's the equivalent of like an hr thing it's like they run the training that's the that's where they do the bulk of the work so i think that we probably give undue weight to the importance of team sports because it's an easy thing for us to understand an easy thing for us to look at a game and think well they were one nil down at half time they won the game two one so it must be that the manager said something you know what did the manager say to you at half time whereas in reality it might be that the team that was losing at halftime was actually doing everything right. And that the tactic they've been working on for the last four days just paid off in the second half and just how it happens. Or it might be that they got lucky or the, the other team dropped off. But because it's an easy way of kind of constructing a narrative in retrospect around the game, we tend to buy into it. I just wonder as well with the David Moyes situation, it, it might be, again, if you think of it from his point of view, he can't physically be in the room. So again, for players, maybe that's less imposing. But then he, if he's on a video screen, has to think, it's my words my words are what are going to maybe turn things around or improve things here. Shouting around, it doesn't have the impact because I'm not physically in the room. I'm not in, imposing myself physically on, on play. I'm not saying you grab them by the throat, but I mean, it's very different. If you're on a video screen, it is all about the words that you use to get your message across. So maybe, I don't know, it'd be very interesting to say if, if, if that's how it would be for a season for coaches, they couldn't actually be in the dressing room with their players. They could only communicate by a video screen. Would they change the, and David Moyes surely has, has probably changed and thought, I've only got this amount of time. It is all about my words. All they can see is my face. Can't see anything else. I've got to really tune them in to what I need them to do. So again, it, it might in a way be very good for coaches. Cause again, it, it's, it's pointless. You're just wasting time. If you're shouting and ranting about, I'm sure that they don't do that. However, whoever you look at, whether it be Neil Warnock or anyone else, you might think, well, yeah, surely they're like a bit so old school, Steve Bruce, that they're the ones that will be screaming at the play. No, absolutely won't. It'll all be the, the tactical side of it. And also the, the way the relationship between coaches, managers and players now has changed massively. So you, you don't have that where the coaches have that dominance maybe over players. They do consult players a lot more as well and they handle them very, very differently. Even, even coaches like Mourinho and Guardiola, I, I still think there will be a to and fro aspect. It won't just be, I'm just going to sit there and listen to you. So you think David Moyes is sat at home in wherever he lives, thinking that it's only words and words are all I have to take <laughs> yeah. your heart away. That's what you're thinking. I, that was what Rory was Googling whilst Chinch yeah. was <laughs> Really? Is that, is that what it is? You're just trying to make a mockery of an excellent point that Chinch no, made. I like, I like the idea of, of David Moyes on, David Moyes on a slightly pixelated big screen. Singing the Bee Gees. That's what I. That's what I really like. I, I'm like, not sure he would be singing. Felipe the Bee Gees. Anderson. Whatever. Whatever he's done recently has worked because works. West Ham looked tremendous. I like, words are all I have to take your heart to win. <laughs> I like the idea that I like the idea that Moisey lives in an area with like really bad broadband and he's got a dodgy stream and it's miles behind. So actually, the first thing he says when the players come into the dressing room at halftime is, "Is it still two nil?" Because it's, <laughs> it's 43 it's minutes not, on my clock. Not, I don't want to kind of keep bringing back to the radio, but we um that Neil Warnock was on. Obviously, Warnock's had to manage games remotely because uh, he he had a brush with with the virus as well. And um, Chap has asked him about about what happens at half time in the team talks and the big screen and how he's how he trying to communicate. And I think Chris Sutton did mention the the possibility that someone in the dressing room might might just mute Warnock. So Warnock's there, someone's <laughs> nodding, giving a speech, <laughs> and whoever's assistant is is just going, yeah, just ignore him. What we're gonna do? 
I like the idea that somebody that he enlists one of his assistants to throw a teacup uh, upon a cue that he gives them. <laughs> now, um, but Neil Warnock is an interesting point in case because any time there is um, a Neil Warnock thing shared on social media, it's, I think it was halftime in a Berry game where he's completely ranting and raving, he just rants and raves for like eight or nine minutes, effing and jeffing his whole way through. Is that uh, Chinch? Are you saying that that even though that, that is that is on tape and that and was that when when was that exactly? Here's my point: yeah, is yeah. That, are, are these uh, elements only of a bygone era, and that even Neil Warnock doesn't do that anymore, or is it because it is so highlighted as a part of a singular person like Neil Warnock that actually mm. even in the time that he did it, it wasn't happening very much? Because the the point that Gareth Southgate made, as I as I flippantly referred to earlier, is that at, at, at halftime it was one one against Brazil, having led since the what third or fourth minute or something like that, and he wanted he said he wanted Winston Churchill and he got Ian Duncan Smith for those outside the UK google him you won't be particularly inspired but the point was is that he was actually looking for something along the lines of albeit of a positive nature rather than a negative nature of what Neil Warnock is famous for delivering something which is which is a bit at least inspirational along the narrative lines that Rory was saying so how much of an anachronism is it or is it genuinely that that players expect it as much as the media does in asking those questions post-match about what the manager said at halftime to turn things around? Well, it, it clearly, at t- times of, of massive, there wasn't the tactical analysis. And I can remember when, when I, I wasn't, again, in terms of my, my coaching to play the position I, I did, I, I didn't really get too much of that. <clears throat> Looking at halftime analysis post-match, it, it wasn't there. It was basically, on a Monday, we'll just run the legs off you. There wasn't any talk around a game and how it went and what we were looking to do and what the opposition did, the tactical analysis wasn't there. So if you're not looking at the game in that way, then ranting and raving, effing and jeffing is probably all you've got left. Just scream at people to try because you don't know any other way and you've not got any other content to actually deliver. Now the coaches do have content to deliver and the players are savvy enough to understand what is going on. The whole football world has completely changed. So what, what is the point? Of, of ranting and raving at, at anybody. It might work with certain people that they might think he needs to kick up the back. So we, they talk about this, sort of the arm around the shoulder, kick up the backside. And to a degree, that still maybe goes on, but it, not in the ways that it probably did 25 years ago. He's talking about a World Cup semi-final there, England-Brazil, and talking about Berry against, say, Scunthorpe 25 years ago. Clearly, they're massively... I can understand what Gareth Southgate is saying. It's a World Cup semi-final. But again, Sven Ronexen's way was his way. And it was successful for a long period of time so clearly he had something that worked but maybe on that occasion people thought that he should have done things differently but he didn't again that that was just his way he was never maybe going to be a ranter and raver he simply wasn't but it is it's the way that the whole analysis of the game has completely changed and how maybe the view of that half and the build up to a game the half time and post-match analysis and breaking it down for the next game that you play and it's even more important this this season with the games coming thick and fast your analysis has to be it's incredible the, the, the amount that the analysts are needed because the, the squads are getting rotated. Things are changing all the time. It's a real team effort to get this job done. So if you've got 15 minutes at half time and you want to scream and shout in someone's face, how is that going to change how a second half goes? It's pointless. I wonder whether there's quite a recent example of a halftime team talk that must have been pretty effective, even though this might seem like a strange example, but that Aston Villa-Liverpool game, was it 4-1 at halftime, wasn't it? Villa were 4-1 up at halftime. Liverpool, Liverpool only shipped three in the second half. I know, well, there you go. Jurgen Klopp really did manage to galvanise his players. I just wonder whether Dean Smith, Dean Smith must have had to have done a, a really phenomenal job at halftime in that game because his players would have come in on an unbelievable high, scarcely able to believe that the, the position that they were in in that game and also scarcely able to believe just how bad Liverpool had been for 45 minutes. But the, the, 
once that initial euphoria had had disappeared a little bit, you'd have, you'd have thought that mentally for those Villa players, the assumption would be there's no way that Liverpool can be anywhere near as bad in the second half. That the the very strongest possibility is that they will come out all guns blazing, and the likelihood is that the next goal in the game, if there was to be a next goal, would be scored by Liverpool. And that would maybe put Villa on the back foot and a little bit jittery. So the fact that Villa came out in the way that they did and scored the first goal of the second half as well, which suggests that Dean Smith in those 15 minutes did a brilliant job of motivating his players to go again and give them the belief that they weren't going to suddenly go out in the second half and face the actual Premier League champion Liverpool, who they would have been assuming to face all afternoon. Absolutely, that's probably what he said. But also what was interesting in the second half, if you could listen to the Villa players, Tyrone Mings in particular, if you could hear what he was saying to the players around him. Again, I talk about the responsibility of players and the coach can only do so much. You're absolutely right. If you're in a dominant position in a game, at halftime, you want a repeat of your performance in that second half. Don't be complacent. See, so many times you, you, you don't know you're doing it unconsciously. You sit a little bit deeper, you invite a team on, they get the next goal, suddenly the whole complexion of the game changes. But if you listen to how the Villa players talk to each other during the course of that second half, they really knew, yes, he's had his say and he's absolutely right and we're going to try and put it into practice. But then we are going to put it into practice on the pitch because he can't really have that effect. He can't, uh, again, how aggressive we are when we go into challenges, how aggressive we are when we pass the ball, how many players we commit for. That's down to us. So again, the players then took it on. And that's as a coach when you've, you've got it made because you know your words have had an effect. The players agree totally what, with what you've said, but they want to go out and put it into practice as well and not just turn and look at you, say that first goal goes Liverpool's way. Well, so what do we do now? Well, really, you should know what, because I've already told you what you should be able to do. And the players take on that responsibility, which I think what the Villa, player, uh, Villa players did in that second half. And more often than not, you will find that the players talking to each other takes up much more than 15 minutes than the manager talking to the players. I think one of the Champions League finals involving Real Madrid and Zinedine Zidane's um, halftime talk, whichever game it was, um, was about two minutes. And that was it. That was the, the entire conversation that he had with his players. He let them settle down, as, as we said earlier on, talk for two minutes and then let the players talk, talk amongst themselves. So we are talking about a 15 minute period, but genuinely the amount of time that a manager will have to actually deliver a team talk in whichever way he decides to do it is often incredibly short, given that there's a 15 minute period. Yeah, there was a, well, after a game when Sheffield United two seasons ago, when they got promoted to the Premier League, they went to Aston Villa and were 3-1 up and Dean Henderson made a couple of errors and they drew the game 3-3. And I remember Chris Wilder after the game, he was asked this question, what do you say to your players after they've thrown a situation away and an individual has, has made errors? And he said, I didn't have to say anything. They walked into that dressing room and the senior players took over. It's not as if everyone shut up, I've got to be the voice. That's when, again, you've passed on the information to the players. The players can do it themselves. And a coach is more than happy to maybe take a back seat. So again, sometimes it's what you say. And sometimes it's actually not saying anything and letting the players. Happened in a game recently, Steve and I were at actually, weren't we? But Newcastle against Burnley. Newcastle uh, Burnley were dreadful in the first half. They came out for the second half after maybe seven minutes of half time. So clearly Sean Dyche has said, I know that's not good enough. You know that's not good enough. You know what the plan is. Get out there and put it right. I got nothing to, there's nothing I need to say to you that you don't already know. And the Burnley players were back out on the pitch a good seven or eight minutes before Newcastle came back out. So there's an example of Sean Dyke saying, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to look in here. I don't want to talk to you. There's no need for me to talk to you. You know what's wrong. Go and put it right. Because he has his trust in his players and there's nothing he can say that is going to be news to his players. So he sends them back out and, and get ready for the second half. And they massively improved, actually, 
for say 20 minutes, the game was taken away from them, but they, they really responded well to what he did. They got back into the game, they equalised and, and really they, they should have gone on and won it. Let's talk about press conferences briefly. Uh, Robbie Wells got in touch over the summer after Frank Lampard and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer pre-match presser ahead of their FA Cup semi-final, you might remember. Lampard suggested that Manchester United got a lot of penalties. <laughs> Won't be the first manager to suggest that. Solskjaer then took the bait in his subsequent press conference saying, it looks like there is a narrative to try and influence the people making the decisions. And then Chelsea duly conceded a penalty in the game at Wembley, which... Uh, actually, they went on to win, so it was a moot point in that uh, regard. But Robbie asks, if the players pay attention to their managers' press conferences, and I would add to that, can they have an effect on the officials as well? So just a brief, brief conversation about the power of the press conference and whether, as it was always considered from somebody like Sir Alex Ferguson, he would make sure that a message got out via the press that the players would pay attention to. So the press were getting one element of it, and the players were getting an element of it too. I've never 100% bought that. The idea that, that... I think there are occasions where certain managers, Ferguson and Mourinho, probably the, the top two, they use the, the press to get a message to a player. But I think it's less, that, it's less that they kind of... Like Jose Mourinho says something coded in the press conference and he expects Deli Alley to pick up his top, copy of the Daily Express and, and read it. Oh, God, that's what he thinks. I think it's more to do with kind of the act of speaking about a player is designed to show the player something. I think that happens occasionally, but not nearly as often as we think it does. I think largely what happens is managers go into a room, are asked a lot of questions, sometimes say something they don't entirely 100% mean or sometimes say something they do mean but probably shouldn't say or whatever, and you end up with a story. But most of the time it is... 20, 25, 30 people asking someone who doesn't want to answer any questions, some questions, and that person doing their best not to answer any questions. Did Mourinho but, do it about Ndombele? Was there, was there a, a yeah, Mourinho does it occasionally. Ndombele. He'll kind of come out and say something. Um, and clearly he wanted to get... A, well, he's mentioned but I don't know if, it, if that's for the player or whether it's for somebody else, whether it's, it's, again, it's the act of saying something public that is designed maybe to highlight the level of his unhappiness with the board or to, you know, with Mourinho, it's, it's wheels within wheels within wheels. It might be that he's... Yeah he's thinking that he wants, you know, if I criticise Tandy and Dombele, then maybe Daniel Levy will realise that I want another midfielder or whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he's expecting Tandy and Dombele to, to, be re, to be consuming kind of the Telegraph's piece on what Mourinho said. I think that the broader thing they use press conferences for, I think basically we, we massively overestimate the importance of press conferences, but the broader thing that it's used for is to create a, not a message for players or for the club. I think it's, it's, they're most often used to create a perception of something within the broader sphere of football. So I don't, again, I don't think that managers are, I don't think Lampard's thinking. The United penalty thing's weird. There's very few of United's penalties are that con contentious. A lot of Man United's penalties are just very obviously penalties. They do get a lot of penalties, but they are mostly very obviously penalties. Um, I think it's, it's, not so much that he's thinking that the referee will read it and think, well, I better not give Man United a penalty. I think that it's almost a, a case of getting his excuses in early and saying, look, you can expect to, you know, Man United get a penalty, don't they? They get penalties, get a lot of penalties. And it's creating this sense that it's playing on that old thing that we talk about all the time of tribalism. It's kind of saying, it's not getting your excuses in early, but it's kind of saying, this is, this is what you can expect to happen. We all know this. So if it happens, then it's not my fault. And the other thing about press conferences that I think is important is that I think the managers themselves have kind of lost sight of what they're actually for and that they go into these rooms full of 30 people asking them questions and think that the people they, they think they see it as like a contest with those people not to answer the questions or not to give them the information they want. But the people in that room really 
are reliant on fans being interested in what that manager says. So actually what the manager's doing is refusing to give their own fans information. That's what they're actually doing. That, that sounds like that's a very romantic view of what the press are meant to be doing, but that, that is literally the only reason why anyone has press conferences, that, that fans want to know and will read about it. So you go to a press conference to ask questions of what you think, sometimes wrongly, the fans want to know the answers to. And managers seem to think that it's, it's a virtue not to give answers to those questions because the media are bad. But the media in that sense exists only really because the fans might, want, might be interested in the answers. That's why they're there. Yeah, those press conferences are just part of, as we've discussed previously, you know, the football itself takes up a very, very small percentage of the week. And press conferences and pre- and post-match interviews are just all part of the the circle of footballing life that fills the gaps in between the bits that we actually want to watch, which is the games itself. In terms of that Mourinho and Dombele thing, I was actually at that game. That was Burnley Spurs' last uh, round of Premier League fixtures before the coronavirus uh, shutdown. And that was an extraordinary one example, I think, of a, of a manager who had decided that was a very much a preemptive because he took Ndombele and Harry Winks off at half time with Burnley all over Tottenham. And he clearly knew that it was coming as to, you know, why had he made uh, two changes at half time. And he, he clearly had to give an answer which backed up his decision. And he had a choice to either throw one or both of those players under a bus or to praise the players that had come on to replace them and clearly felt that, you know, Ndombele was the right target because he said pretty much the same thing in every interview he did. It was like a scripted line. And the and after he said it a couple of times, of course, it starts filtering down around the press that were at the ground. And by the time he got to the radio interview, which, which I was, was in, it was more or less a case of, Jose, I think you want to tell us something about Tangi and Dombele? And he just gave him the opportunity to deliver his line because he knew it was, it was coming. So there, there, there clearly is some element of um, preemptiveness about some of this stuff. But I think we give, it would be, because managers have got so much to do in any given week that I think it would be ridiculous for us to believe that they spend a great deal of time thinking about what they're going to say to the press. Because very often they are sort of hurried. It makes us feel important. That's why. Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe, and maybe, yeah, yeah. That's why they're given sort of preeminence because it makes journalists feel like they're really significant. This is the highlight, this is not the highlight of the manager's week, but this is a really important moment of the manager's week. This is his chance to speak to the public, to speak to us. Whereas, in fact, that the managers, I think, see them as a, well, they definitely see them as a massive inconvenience. And, and they spend most of their time just trying to leave without saying anything that, that might not even come back to haunt them, but might not be, might be misrepresented, which the press, again, doesn't necessarily help itself with. They, they, they are, at times, I find them really valuable press conferences, but I think managers generally feel as though that they are half an hour in which they're trying to be twirled and they want to get out of there without being twirled. That's their priority. Yeah, and I also think the players, I'd be surprised if the players watch press conferences. I certainly never did, because why would you? Because two days later or a day later, you'd be with that coach again anyway. If he's got anything to say to you, or the team, he'll say it's the team and to you. So again, I, I, I don't know whether players, I don't know whether you hear Rory or Steve, you, whether players do actually take an interest and actually when they get home would actually watch, you know, the post-match press conference and see what was said. I'd, I'd be surprised. I think they become aware of if something if something eye catching is said. I think the players become aware of it. I think, but it more through that kind of. Well, they made they made aware of it. Yeah, that someone will text them and say, "Have you seen what he said?" or "Have seen what he's done?" And certainly, you hear stories of kind of managers saying something particularly outlandish or having a really bad press conference, and you hear 
hear stories of the of it getting back to the players that this has happened and it kind of undermines. I think with the Benitez facts thing, I think that wasn't it, a wasn't inaccurate and b wasn't very well received in Liverpool's dressing room. The, the focus was always. Um, Oh, you know, he's inspired Manchester United, but I don't think I, I don't know if it did, did that. It probably, you know, they 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 may well have found it funny or it been treated as some sort of a sign that he's cracking up. But I think within Liverpool's dressing room, there was a bit of well, we kind of see what you mean, but maybe shouldn't have said that. So I think they they become aware of what's said in the press conferences. I don't think they actively seek out press conference copy. I mean, I'm not sure anybody does. As, as the dynamic of your more press conferences, and I, I used to do it when, when Mourinho was at Chelsea because they were really, they were like a spectacle. They were like really engaging. I, I just I just stopped going to press conferences because I just think it was, I wasn't learning anything at all. Has the dynamic changed or is it the people that are doing the press conferences are, or are press conferences, like you say, are they seen as the danger? We don't really want to be here. So we're going to try and get out as quickly as possible. But do, do they need to be maybe reminded that, as you said, that the information they're giving is for their fans? Yeah, it's not to, to read and find out. Don't again, if you're so guarded, then you, your fans aren't getting. And these post-match interviews as well, where they they throw questions about, well, what do you think about how the game went? Asking the interviewer. Well, that, the fans want to hear what you want to say. So do maybe do the coaches, managers have to be a bit more open and understand what a press conference it's, is all about rather than just be scared to death of them or think I'm trying to get out of this. But you need to remember that the coaches are now told that they are speaking to the fans via club media and mm. the club media is not mm. involved in the press conference. The press yeah. conference is essentially set up as them as opposed to us. That is how the dynamic has grown because club media is proliferating. So the, clubs, so the clubs wouldn't ask the questions that the general press conference would ask about no, the thorny issues, maybe. So it's safer, isn't it, the, the club ones? But, uh, and Rory says, of course not, because here is where the power dynamic is and where the battle is, is because those members of the press who are not club media go into the press conferences, essentially it's exclusively members of non-club media who are in the press conference, because that's why the, the availability is, is, is given to them. They are thinking... The manager has spoken to club media. He has got lots of easy questions to answer. He may well be speaking directly to, to, to the fans who subscribe to that club media, but we are here to do a better journalistic job than that. Mm. And so the power dynamic then becomes, is that journalist there for the fans, as Rory romantically suggested that, that, that traditionally they are and, and should be, or is that journalist there on behalf of themselves in the competitive world of the media they are a part of. So I am sitting there going, I need to get a good line for me, for my self-esteem, for my reputation, and for the fact that, frankly, the manager hasn't been pressed by most of the club media. So then, then the power dynamic is shifted, and the manager then is made aware of the fact that the journalist might be a little bit self-serving, and therefore he doesn't want to help them. And it that's makes when it you get the battle. It makes it much more confrontational and it doesn't need to be that way because because the club media isn't serving all of the fans and by not asking those difficult questions, the club media, and which obviously they can't because it's, it's an, sort of intramural kind of propaganda publication, that's what they're there for. They, it's not to reflect on, on journalists who work for clubs at all. Someone has to go and ask the, the thorny questions. I agree that there's a, there's a slight, it leans to the performative because the journalists are playing the role of journalists, especially because everything's televised. You're playing the role of journalists who might be on TV and you want, yeah, for your own self-esteem and for your, for your colleagues' appreciation and for your reputation and just in case it's on telly, you kind of want to be the person who asks the really hard-hitting questions. Most of us don't. I think I've asked about two hard-hitting questions in my entire life in the press conference. I get really nervous. But um, they are, they are, it's not to say they're not useful, but I think they have drifted a long way from their intended purpose. For, yeah, and you're right, the, the rise of club media is, is part of that. Um, and it's created this kind of 
totally unnecessary us versus them dynamic. Basically, the basic question is a, it's a standing joke, but the basic question for a press conference is what are the in, what what is your injury news? That sort of stuff. It's really important. Press conferences are really important because yeah, people you know people are putting money on games. People are, are emotionally invested in them. They need to know what the kind of situation is, and that beyond that, it's kind of yeah the morale around the club so you've got a right to ask about the stories that are swirling around if you know if there's been a controversy or there's been a poor result you've got a right to ask that it's important to know what's going on inside a club but only really so you can convey that in a more what's the word balanced way than than the club might because the club it's not in the club's interest to say well you were last week you're gonna be less this week that's the club is not going to ask that question and nor should it um and so the journalists have to, but it doesn't. It, it annoys me that they're so confrontational because, and it's. I think it's more that the managers do that than the than the journalists, but it doesn't have to be like that at all. Well, Rory's struck on a couple of re- really interesting things there. The, com- the confrontational thing is is a good example of one of the benefits that I think we've seen from a from a TV and slightly lesser extent radio uh, approach to things in this post-COVID situation or current ongoing COVID situation is doing those interviews by the pitch. I've got much better post-match interviews with managers as a consequence of doing them by the pitch stood at a difference because you're not pinning them up against the wall in the mm. tunnel. And, and that is an immediately confrontational situation to be in because you're stood so close to each other in a very, very enclosed space. But actually being stood further apart you are having much more of a, a normal conversation. And I think as a consequence, we've got better interviews with managers and players. And I would suggest whether the media, uh, the, the wider media needs to look at, at the existing way of doing press conferences and think about ways that you can change it. Because it's just, they've become bloated. And there's this sense that every journalist from every newspaper has got to be there because if they're not there, then the press conference, you know, no point in the press conference going ahead if, if that certain journalist from that certain newspaper isn't in attendance. And actually, shouldn't we be a little bit more mature and say, what, what is the best way for us to access managers and footballers to get the best possible content for our publications? And, it, and the other thing, you were just talking about club media there, Rory, is something that has constantly struck me and I've heard examples of it from people that work in club media all the time, is that they are often told by press officers that they cannot ask the manager certain questions about players' injuries or runs of form, etc. And then those managers are asked those very questions by the journalists from outside of the club media in the very next room. And in terms of trying to protect the narrative for their in-house media, they're losing an opportunity to actually deliver that message. You, if a player is injured and going to miss the game, why would you not talk about it on your club media? Because then you are delivering that message straight to your most dedicated consumers. Why give them one message and then answer a question about something in a completely different way to national publications just a few moments later? It makes no sense whatsoever, yet they continue to do it. Or to pretend in your in-house interview that you haven't lost the last four games when you're about to be asked about losing your last four games by other journalists, say, a couple of minutes later. It's nonsensical to me. 
And I think football clubs and the media should have a growing up think about the way that they can properly address it so that, so that everybody can benefit from the message being delivered in the right and fair way. And to finish where we started about Sir Alex Ferguson, the level of confrontation with Sir Alex Ferguson reduced as soon as the cameras were put in a, in a press conference and everybody was in the same room as opposed to what it was previously and in days gone by where you would have a press conference with just the written journalists and all manner of hell could break loose. Um, so at least there is slightly less confrontation to what it might have been about 15 years ago rest in peace the glorious days <laughs> <laughs> that is where we we will end it i imagine that there was uh, probably more to talk about about both subjects but to be honest with you the amount of time that we've talked about everything today suggests that that is not uh, a road we should go down now over the years the soccer story has been the domain of andy hinchcliffe who regularly regales us with tales playing and broadcasting days with all adult behavior and libel where the details are moved however this week and indeed next chinch is going to be sharing the spotlight as he will be co-starring in a soccer story with none other than Stephen Wyeth. I will what? leave it to them to explain. <laughs> well, this is... Why have I not been warned about this in advance? Were you not on the WhatsApp group? Anyway, this is a, a, an is improvement. Is this an improvisation of the soccer story that I'm I, I think to... it is, yeah. I, I hope you know this is happening, Steve. I don't know how many games I've co-commentated, hundreds and hundreds of games, but now I've got to the, the, the high point of my career. I'm going to be working, wait for this, I'm going to be working with Stephen Wyatt. For the first time in our careers, we will be in a booth with a big perspex screen between us, commentating on, wait for it, Iceland against Romania, the big one. For a place at Euro 2020, time to be decided when Euro 2020 actually takes place. Well, that's, actually, you've got that wrong, Steve. That, that's, this is the semi-final. They've still got another game. Well, yes, so that, that, that is get, the so ultimate. Again, have you done your, I've ultimate. got my prep in front of me here. Have you? I'm worried already. We're only a few days away from the big match. And that worries me that they're playing for a place at Europe. Yeah, they are, but not, not if they win this one. Yeah, I've, I've built my player grids, Chinge. I haven't actually got onto the general match, uh, match facts yet. Ooh, so, player uh, grids. Yeah, I've done my yeah. players. Ooh. It's, do you know what? We've only... We've only even ever been on the same gantry twice. It's so again, just, like this... you, hundreds of football matches commentated on and a, a, a friendship going back many, many months. <laughs> yet we've never, ever commentated <laughs> on a game together. This is, I, I was tremendously excited. When but you isn't, it, isn't it a bit strange how you, because it, it's now we're going to be working together. We're not just friends sat having a beer together. We're actually... We're broadcasting to many tens of people. <laughs> we, are you a bit kind of, well, how does he actually work? How, how does he actually work? We, we know we're both brilliant, but is it going to be, is the diet, we're going to be fine, aren't we? Please well, tell no, me we're going to be fine. I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, you know that you never meet your heroes. I am a little bit worried that, you know, we, you? we've built up a mystique about each other's professional capabilities that we now yeah. are going to expose to the reality for 90 minutes. The thing is, for you, clearly this is a massive step up because I don't want to mention the people that you've worked with in the past. But for me, this I'm working, I've been working with the greats for a long time. You are just another one in the pantheon of the commentating greats. Whereas for you, you must understand, you probably do appreciate, and it, it will scare you, but don't, don't be afraid to talk about it. This is a big step up in terms of your, your, your co-commentating. Chinch, I have worked alongside the co-commentary yes. doyen, Jim Beglin. So it is ah, you okay, that yes, needs fine. to be worried about. Who's, yes. not, who's not only someone you should aspire to be as good as as a co-commentator, mm -hmm. but also someone you should have aspired to be as good as as a left-back. 
That's so <laughs> I can't really, I can't really, I can't really do either of those. So if anybody should be feeling the weight of expectation of standard, oh, it's me. But oh, this is, right. But okay. maybe this is this is see this is the thing you've made you've made assumptions. Yeah. And this is part of the problem that we we are about to be exposed to the reality of the situation for the very first time. I, I'm just worried, Hugh, about how you know. Is he want to sit on the left or the right? Is he, you know, these they can get a bit deaverish, can't they? These commentators. I'm just worried. But not working with Steve, you presume it's going to be fine. But he, he could be. You know, does he want coffee at halftime? All this type of stuff is. Does he want me to bring biscuits? I've no idea. Very well, demanding man. Uh, Stephen, uh, two important things. At one point during the game, when you need a breather and you need him to to, to jump in with some incisive co-commentary, he will look at you, eyes wide, and just shrug his shoulders, <laughs> leaving you completely, completely rudderless. Um, and also, make sure there are no essential power plugs near his fat knees, because they have been known to be knocked out um, with a shift in weight. So those are the only two things. Having done... 200 to 250 games with Annie Hinchcliffe. Those are the two abiding memories of his entire contribution. Steve's, Steve's actually writing those down. You don't need to write them down. He's joking. The problem is because is there's going to be a perspex screen between us for, uh, for COVID reasons, I, I'm slightly concerned that I'm not even going to be able to tap him on the shoulder to bring to his attention that I need him to actually do some work. I, I will know. I'll just feel the heat coming off you. <laughs> uh, I do tend to make eye contact with my with my commentators on a regular basis during a match. Yeah, heat, heat, heat coming off you is something that in these times of COVID is not necessarily something <laughs> you would encourage. Uh, keep your correspondence coming into setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Andy, and Steve. And to you all for listening, we'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Uh, when I clambered up to the gantry at St. James's Park at the weekend, um, I wasn't sure who else was going to be up there. I was, I was, I, I'm afraid to admit I was the last commentator to arrive because there's no press facilities at grounds currently. And I was staying in a hotel very near the ground. So I effectively created my own press lounge in the hotel. And I, uh, and I did my final bits of work there before heading over to, to St. James's Park. And as I climbed up to the gantry, first person I saw, Steve Wilson, my Match of the Day colleague, who was at the game commentating for the Premier League World Feed. So it was nice to see Steve. And then the, I, I saw where my, my position was. And then beyond me, the, the, the cameramen and said hello to the sound men. And then I could see the back of Rob Hawthorne's head. <laughs> oh, Rob's here from Sky. I must pop over and say hello to Sky. But I couldn't see who was sat next to, to Rob because he was blocked off. Uh, but I could just see Rob's head nodding up and down. And I thought, I know the look of a man who is currently being spoken at by Andrew George. By Alan Smith. <laughs> and lo and behold, the other side of Rob in a massive puffed up jacket with Andy Hinchcliffe delivering some kind of missive to his poor uh, ear-bashed Sky colleague. But it was delightful to see you. I wasn't expecting you to be on the gantry with me at the weekend. It, and it, it was delightful. very nubby. I, I don't know whether... Yeah, you, you didn't clearly didn't know that I was doing the game or you knew I was doing the game but tried to get in and out without coming across <laughs> me, which I, eventually we, we saw each other. You had to speak to me. I couldn't avoid it. Well, because you've been working the previous night, Chinch. I'd watched the end of your, your game the previous night. I thought, there's no way Sky would make him do two night games back to back. So he's not going to be at St. James's Park. But lo and behold, you Just are the man. You are the prime. workhorse. The man they turn to for primetime Friday and Saturday night entertainment. Yeah, kind of.